go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can uh, you be made, can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Uh, That section begins with the word and, very much because it's following on from a a conversation that Jesus has already begun with his uh, his disciples. Uh, Just interestingly, uh, in preparing this week, I was was digging around the the office at the Jubilee Center that we use midweek, and uh, I found out uh, when we last looked at this passage as a church, and I appreciate many of you won't won't have been around when we last did that, but uh, many years ago we looked at Mark's Gospel, and at the corresponding week, in other words, like the second Sunday in December, we, we looked at this passage once before, but can anyone guess what year? I'll give you some options if you like, but what year did we look at Mark's gospel and arrive at Mark chapter 9, the second Sunday in December? Sorry? 2010, okay. Any advances or the other way? Uh, should, we do, should we do it higher and lower? Okay, lower. 2004, lower. 1994, higher. 1996, higher. That would be telling. Higher. 2002, lower. Ooh. 2000, higher. 2001, bravo, well done. And what I was also very intrigued to realize, I can now tell you that I found the tape. We recorded messages onto tape in those days. Um, even in this millennium. Um, and on the tape as well, not only was there the message, but also the fact that some people got baptized. So somebody in this room got baptized the second Sunday in December in 2001. Any guesses? No. Good, good try. Close. Rachel. Hey. <laughs> Oh, happy days. <laughs> anyway, back to, uh, back to the message. Obviously, in just reading it through, uh, it's fairly hard reading. It's fairly uncomfortable subject matter, but important for Jesus to, um, to have shared. And really, the last time we were in Mark's Gospel, we looked at him teaching on humility. And in continuing that conversation, the focus... Um, shifts a little bit now. We're looking at Jesus' teaching on, on holiness. And what I'd like us to look at as we go through is, is first of all, kind of consider a, few que- well, consider a few questions. Firstly, well, why? Why did Jesus uh, teach? Who in particular was he looking to get this message across to? Before we l- move on to looking at what did Jesus teach? And then finally, how? How do we live in the light of it? So first of all, why? And the answer plainly is, this is all part and parcel of him training his disciples. That's what this middle chunk of Mark's gospel is, is focused on. Jesus was giving his time particularly to teaching and training his disciples. There's a number of reasons for that. Jesus knows the state of the nation 
around them, they know that the, state of, uh, the, the nation of Israel this time, it was no longer this salty, godly influence um, on the nations around. Um, it, it was no longer, as he says in verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? The, the nation had lost its distinctive qualities of, of holiness. Now, salt is good. Jesus doesn't elaborate, but we know there's a variety of ways in which salt will be used to, to preserve food. That was one way. Enhancing flavor. Um, just season it into a dish. Does anyone, was anyone else told by their mum to gargle salt water when they had a sore throat? I'm glad I'm not the only one. I'm hoping it is actually worthwhile, because otherwise, why on earth would you do it? Um, but it, it has a helpful, apparently, uh, 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 effect in terms of kind of bringing more blood to the surface to help fight infection or something. I don't know. Medics can tell me later what's really going on. Anyway, that's what I was told. Salt is good, but Israel is no longer salty. It's no longer that, that godly seasoning to sprinkle into other nations and bless them. It's become corrupt. That would be completely ironic to have some seasoning. think, well, it's got a bit contaminated. So now what we need to do is add some seasoning to the seasoning. And then we can take the seasoning and add that to the dish. That's just pointless. Um, so Jesus is doing something new. He's committed himself to these 12 disciples. Well, well more than that, but they're his, his immediate circle, if you like, of influence. He's focused on them, committed to them, and he's teaching and training them. And in effect saying, guys, I want you to be different. I want you to be a distinct taste for anyone who encounters you. Standing out, not blending in. I want you to be known for your righteousness. So in a sense, well, listen to what the Pharisees say, but don't be like what they're like. Your righteousness has got to exceed theirs. Goodness me. But there was a a corruptness that Jesus was was wanting to to break and bring a new uh, refreshing quality. It's the same for us, the same call uh, to holiness. So in 1 Peter Um, And chapter 1, verse 14, one of those disciples later writing this says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So Jesus knows the state of the nation. He also knows what lies ahead. He knows he doesn't have that much longer with them, so he's preparing them ever more, even more, to be his representatives. You're going to be representing my kingdom on this planet when I'm no longer here in the flesh. So, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. I want you to be like me. And that, of course, is then the same for us. Jesus now in heaven, enthroned. He's the head of the church. We, his church, are the body of Christ. And so people should think when they encounter someone who says, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. Wow, it's, it's like he or she is a little Christ. And that's where the name seems to have come from, Christian. Like they, believers in Antioch kind of attracted that nickname because when people saw them, that's what they encountered. Well, we've not met Jesus, but we've heard about him. And you do a pretty reasonable job of, of resembling um, what we understand him to be like. I was doing an Alpha talk, talk this week in concluding our Alpha um, course. 
and uh, looking at the church, apparently, I don't know if Mick Jagger knows this, uh, but the world round, he's probably quoted on the Alpha Week when it comes to uh, talking about the church. Mick Jagger has apparently said, Jesus Christ was fantastic, but I do not like the church. The church does more harm than good. Now, is his perception fair? In many cases, perhaps not, actually. There are some fantastic churches and believers, but the perception is there anyway that suggests there's, there's a disconnect. The people think, well, that's Jesus. I'd love to spend time with Jesus. I could well imagine kind of having a great time, just spending time with him, get him around the table, let's have a chat, because um, I've seen what he's like. I'm not so sure I want to set my foot in the church, though. It could just be an unfair perception, but it suggests a disconnect. Jesus is saying, no, I want you to be holy because that's, well, I want you to be like me. And Jesus knows actually what they're like in the present. Here in Mark chapter 9, it would still appear there's a bit of a disconnect between Jesus and what his disciples are like. He's heard them squabbling among themselves, arguing about who's the greatest, kind of trying to push themselves forward and others back. He's heard that. Maybe they've had kind of conversations and they've not really realized that it's in Jesus' earshot. Uh, But what were you talking about when you were on the road? Oh, uh, they didn't really want to say. (laughs) He heard. He knew. He knew what was really going on. He's seen them. He's seen them ignoring children. He's seen them ignoring little ones when they were in the house together. And he addresses them. Jesus takes a child and, and, and brings a child before them and just holds, holds him in his arms um, and later on, we'll see Jesus just commending children and blessing children. That's Jesus' approach. That's the way he leads. Not arguing, not trying to take the most significant place, but looking to serve. And he's, he's seen them as well, or heard of them, quickly stopping a man with greater faith than them. Someone has been um, expelling demons in Jesus' name, but he's not one of us, the disciples say. So we stopped him, expecting perhaps a pat on the back. Jesus, no, don't, don't stop him. He's blessing people in my name. The fact that you don't know his name is neither here nor there. He's, he's serving me and he's believing me. And so Jesus comes in in this passage to, to bring some warning. He says, you know, uh, he talks of, Causing one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. He'll go on to talk about actually causing ourselves to sin. Causing oneself to sin. And the the phrase there um, suggests the image of being tripped up or tripping someone up. uh, Putting an obstacle in their way. um, Causing someone to stumble that leads to their downfall. Um, That's what he's seen them doing. And so he knows he's got to get their attention um, and, and bring this teaching. Now, is that the same for us? I don't say because I know, but the disciples, all their errors and mistakes are just really obvious and blatant. Um, they have these arguments almost just amongst themselves in broad daylight, and Jesus is there. Uh, for the rest of us now, things can stay behind closed doors or just inside our minds and our hearts, attitudes that don't necessarily always become very apparent to others, but just attitudes and behavior that we nurse or we we somehow kind of accommodate which does lead us maybe to tripping ourselves up or tripping up someone else 
It's all a stark contrast to Jesus and his way of being, his way of, of leading. And uh, obviously, yeah, we want to, to follow him, hence looking at this uh, teaching today. So what did Jesus teach? He taught, firstly, the seriousness of sin. He is warning his disciples. And it's worth just noting, that's who he's talking to. He's talking to disciples. He's talking to believers. He ta- he's talking to people who would identify themselves as Jesus' followers. So this is a hard message. Its primary focus is on people who say, yes, I follow Jesus. Okay, well, let's have a look then at the, at the seriousness of sin. He's talking in vivid, dramatic, uncomfortable language that we'd prefer to kind of move on, well, or maybe not, because the next section is about divorce. But anyway, we'd prefer sometimes to find other passages, but when you work your way through one book in the Bible, we don't just want to wriggle out of stuff that is uncomfortable, so there it is. And it's, it's not soft and gentle, it's not a soft and gentle nudge. It's a loud, a loud, a, a, a hard. It's a loud wake-up call. Uh, interesting. Even when we were hearing Richard preach last week from from Hebrews, that's what the Hebrews were getting every now and again. This wonderful picture of Jesus and just uh, an explanation and a, and a description of who he is and uh, and how great he is and his supremacy. And then it comes uh, to. Uh, Every now and again, through the book, just repeats or comes afresh to another warning, another kind of wake-up call to the people of God. Um, and it's, it's uncomfortable. It's, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Really? My goodness. I mean, that's shocking, attention-grabbing, question-raising language. But he's saying, look, it's almost a way of saying, if only, if only the punishment were as swift and just quickly over and done with. And that's, this is the punishment that's, that's due when someone else gets tripped up deliberately or recklessly by something that I've done. That's the punishment that's due. Oh, if only, if, if only it was over quickly. Because you have a big millstone around your neck. You're not going to last long in a vast volume of water. And there are these warning passages in the Bible. It's tempting to try to dilute them, to soften them, to reduce their impact and avoid their implications. But we just need to look at it a little bit more. So the seriousness of sin kind of raises the question, though, well, better than what? It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Better than what? Well, he goes on to talk, not only of the seriousness of sin, but the reality of hell. Because it is mentioned time and time again in the warnings that follow in verse 43 through uh, to 48. He speaks of a place called hell. He's using a Hebrew word, um, uh, Gehenna which is referring to a specific place, a specific valley um, that was outside Jerusalem. If you want to find out what happened there, uh, you could read uh, in 2 Chronicles 28 and verse 3 about an evil king of God's people, an evil king called Ahaz, um, who used that uh, valley for horrific and ungodly sacrifices that took place 
there. So the, the, it's, a, it's a place that became associated with absolute horror. A place to be avoided at all costs. It may be true, I'm not quite sure, some have said that since that time it became a, a, a rubbish dump because it was just a horrific place. The only purpose for it, so some think, was that it was the dumping ground for rubbish and therefore things were always burning there um, uh, and a place to be avoided. Whether it was Jerusalem's landfill site or not, it's a horrific place. Jesus also quotes the very last verse of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verse uh, 24. We see it there, this reference to the there worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a reference to the, uh, to the destiny of those who have rebelled against God. And what we see in what Jesus teaches, again, is that it is a real place. It's, there is a, a reality. It's not just imag- an imaginary device, a way of thinking to try and get us to behave in a certain way. Say, no, this is, this is real, and I want you to be aware of it. Um, in Matthew 25, verse uh, 41, um, in a, a parable that Jesus taught, the sheep and the goats, it says... Then he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why God has prepared this place, Gehenna or hell, a place for final punishment and judgment for the devil and his angels. Responsible for evil. There's a reminder there that Evil won't triumph, that justice will be done, that there is a day of reckoning um, that none will escape, um, and that God's set purpose is that the devil and his angels, those angelic beings who decided to rebel against him, are not just going to run amok for eternity. Their days are numbered, their time is coming, uh, when that's where they'll be contained forever, a just punishment for their crimes, uh, for all the, the evil that has been, uh, they have encouraged on the earth. Note, note this, it's not a place where they get corrected. It's not a place where the devil and his angels will have a second chance. It's where they will be with eternal fire. That's what Jesus is speaking out about. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, it's a place where for those uh, without relationship with Jesus. Let me just make sure I've got the right point. There are those to whom Jesus will say, you know, then, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Um, there may be people who are claiming, oh, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that and the other in your name? But Jesus is like, you can be with me for eternity, but, or, or people can be with me for eternity who are in relationship with me. I, I don't know you. And so, uh, hell, Gehenna, is this, this place away from Jesus, away from God. And that's why it's so horrific. It's a place without his presence. 
at all. A God-forsaken place. That's maybe how this valley, Gehenna, was regarded. Just, God's not there. So don't go there. Whatever you do, don't go there. So of course we'd prefer uh, not to think about it. But it's something Jesus taught. It's something that the, the apostles, they did then come to understand and talk about, write about themselves. Um, so, just looking at 2 Peter, uh, chapter 3. Reading from verse 3, it said, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And of course we know that there will be those who say, no, this is... This, this is a fable, this is, this is made up ever since the beginning. You know, people have always lived and died and things go on as they've always gone on. Um, don't, don't worry yourself with this. It's tempting to ignore it. Um, but Peter's then writing, no, don't forget. Don't forget. There is a day of judgment. Don't forget. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient. Note this as well, though. He's not wanting anyone to perish. That's why kind of human history, since the death and resurrection of Jesus, has been allowed to continue for thousands of years. I'm patient, the Lord says. I want people to be saved. I don't want anyone to perish. So the seriousness of sin, the reality of hell, but also, what does Jesus teach? The offer of life. He speaks... In those three verses, uh, 43, 45, and 47, of entering life, entering the kingdom of God. There will be a day of judgment. Thereafter, there are two destinations, two eternal destinations. We've looked at one of them, but Jesus is teaching there is another There is another destination. There is another path. In uh, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus would describe himself as, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He came so that we might receive eternal life. That's his purpose. The the disciples don't yet see, they don't yet perceive his ultimate mission and what it's going to lead to. That's why Jesus is teaching them. In John uh, chapter 3, well-known verses, For many, Uh, John 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Why did God send his son? To condemn the world? To write the world off? 
or to rescue, or to save, or to demonstrate his love, to lay down his own life, that we might all receive eternal life. That's what awaits. That's, as it were, what was uh, prophesied earlier on. We've, we've seen something, we've known something, we've maybe experienced something of God's goodness, but we haven't seen anything yet. He has more in this life, and an abundance that we cannot possibly yet imagine awaiting for us, for how long? For eternity. Forever. This is good news that Jesus came. How did he become for us the way? How did he open up the way for us to enter into life? By tasting hell for us. So we've looked at the reality, the seriousness of sin, and the reality of hell. But we need to consider the offer of life and what Jesus has done for us. That he was prepared to go to the God-forsaken place. The cross on which he was crucified was a place where he experienced being forsaken by God. Where the, the close intimacy with the presence of his father that he'd enjoyed through all his life, vanished because the Father turned away from him. And he experienced, he tasted, it was weighed upon him, all the wrath, all the, the, the righteous punishments of the sin that I've stored up. Causing myself to stumble, causing other people to stumble he took that upon himself and the punishment that I deserved so they're disciples yes they're going to be trained yes they're going to get things wrong yes they're going to be corrected but for those who have received this offer of life there is now no condemnation that's what is available. So that's, as we know, uh, again, they may be familiar words for some. Always good to remind ourselves of familiar truth, if it is familiar. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. Because of this offer of life in Jesus, finally then, we have the question, how? We've looked at why and focused on the fact that he was teaching his disciples, and we need to bear that in mind all the way through. What did he teach? We've looked at that, the seriousness of sin, the reality of hell, the offer of life. How? How do we live in the light of this? Well, firstly, by making sure that we've accepted the offer that we've accepted life in Christ. The gospel is amazingly good news when we see what we have needed to be saved from. So why look at the seriousness of sin and the reality of hell? To help us to appreciate the offer of life. To help us to appreciate the, the marvel and wonder and the, and the goodness of the gospel. That there is a day of judgment coming, but look how it's described in in the book of Hebrews and chapter nine. 
We read there in verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So we have one life, and we're going to die, and we're going to meet God, and there'll be a day of judgment. But for all those who have received uh, the offer of life and salvation in Christ, uh, that's what we will then receive in full on that day. So we can already be sure and certain of it if we put our hope in him. Um, and that's what we'll experience on that day. The, 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 the gift of salvation. Jesus will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the, con- the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So, we need to make sure that we have received the gospel, that we've confessed with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and that we've believed in our hearts that he died and he rose again um, and he's now seated in glory. And that forgiveness comes uh, from him and eternal security is available in him. Fact. Have you received it? Knowing that we have received it, this passage is also encouraging us to deal deliberately and ruthlessly with sin. Cut off whatever causes us to sin. Now this might just raise a number of questions like, really? Like, sorry, pardon me. Uh, cut off a hand? Well, surely not. Well, no, not, not literally cutting off parts of our, um, of our body. Again, he's using very vivid language to make the same point. Deal ruthlessly with what causes us to stumble. And it won't be the same for everyone. Um, and, and perhaps that's partly why Jesus uses a different images. He talks about the hand. He talks about the foot. He talks about the eye. It, it will be different for different people. But he is emphasizing the point. Deal with sin. God the, and the gospel wasn't designed so that we are excused from sin and just kind of go around the revolving door of sin. No, we're rescued from it. We're saved with a sure and certain hope and we're then enabled to do what the law could never help us to do and what we ourselves are powerless to do is to grow in godliness, to grow in holiness. It can be a number of, a number of different things that need cutting off. Here's just a few ways of, of looking at that. I see it in, uh, in the book of Job, chapter 31, and verse Seven, I think. Job says that if my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, he says, just referring to those, if my steps have turned from the path, maybe there are some ways in which my feet have led me astray. Um, if, my, uh, if my heart has, has been led by my eyes, seen something and coveted it, and desired it, and been drawn away from it, and my heart following it. Has that been, been happening? We can be led by, our hearts can be led by our eyes. Um, or my hands, if, if, we've, if we've 
kind of taken hold of something. Actually, we know it's unclean and we shouldn't have. We've got with unclean hands as a result. Jesus is saying, deal with that. And it could be different for different people. It could be to do with uh, a friendship group. And you just kind of know that if you hang out with them in an evening, it's going to just draw you into stuff. You think later, well, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have drank that. Um, I think, well, do I have to kind of say just no? I wonder, I'd love to witness them. Well, if in the here and now is causing a stumble, do something deliberate. Do something ruthless. Not to be overtly unfriendly, but I need to, I need to handle my life differently right now. So I'm going to make a change and for, I'm not going to hang out with them in the same way at the same time because I know it's not going to be helpful. Of course, it's not just talking about things we do either. Uh, it could be talking about our attitudes. So in Proverbs 16, uh, 6 verse 17 refers there to, to haughty eyes, arrogant eyes. Maybe that's something that Jesus saw in his disciples. Just a slight superiority. We're better than that guy, so we're going to tell him to stop. We're more important than that child, so we're going to ignore them. And you can kind of just see that eyes can sometimes betray an attitude. What's going on? The eyes don't look quite right here. So I wonder what's going on in the heart. Attitudes that need cutting off with, well, with the word of God, with the sword of the Spirit. But it sounds so limiting. When we see what others have, how our friends might choose to live, doing whatever they want, do we really have to limit ourselves? And the world says, if you really want something and no one gets hurt, go ahead. It's, it's fine. And the, des- the devil whispers the same. He's always been whispering the same. You won't surely die. No. Just take it a bite of it. It's just a piece of fruit. It's not going to do, do you any harm. And believing the lie, taking a bite. Did it do them harm, Adam and Eve? Of course it did. Has it done us harm? Of course it has. The whole of human history has been affected by, ah, it doesn't matter. Go for it. It's all right. Go ahead. Take a bite. So God is watching. Others will be, be polluted. If the Bible says it's sinful, if God says, don't go there, others will be polluted. Or we ourselves will get tripped up. So yes, this passage is saying it's better to enter life with a hand missing than to go to hell with two hands. I had everything I wanted. I pursued everything my heart desired. But it's not great if it leads there. Well, surely, well, once saved, always saved. Philippians 1 verse 6, God started a good work. He's going to carry it on to completion. Yes, of course. We believe, we, we understand that God's not trying to just undermine the faith of genuine believers. But he's saying, look, just consider where this could go. Jesus knows there's a group of disciples here. One of them is Judas. One of them is identified in the group. One of them is following Jesus. Kind of, because he kind of wants to follow other agendas and priorities as well. He's got this this ambition, 
Maybe within that is a real love of money, and he's trying to follow two masters. I can follow Jesus, hoping that it's going to help me follow this as well. And there comes a point when he realizes, I can't, you can't follow two masters. There's going to come a point where we make a decision to go one way or the other. And so there comes a point where Judas decides, I'm going to go this way. And it reveals what was in his heart all along. So the way of, of knowing, in a sense, yeah, I'm trusting in Jesus and I'm going his way. I, I know where my, where my future lies is well, that I'm growing in God, that I'm putting him first, that I'm following him. Does that mean that we're earning our salvation? No, it just means we're waiting for that day. And on that day, I know where my confidence is. So there are things in the here and now I'm going to deal with, I'm going to cut off, because it, it can't just belongs to another path and I've decided I'm not going down that path I'm following him so I'm going to deal with it believing that's it's more joyful to live a limited narrow life than to go down a path where we think that's going to be enjoyable true pleasure is found just giving ourselves and following Jesus we can't live life on both paths simultaneously we're being invited to just go down one to Jesus. We might think, well, it, okay, but it only happens when I'm tired. only happens when I'm lonely. Only, it only happens in certain circumstances that I take hold of something I shouldn't have taken hold of. I look at something I shouldn't have looked at. My feet take me down another path. Okay, well, sometimes we need to be realistic and just think, why am I tired? Is there some way in which I can deal with my tiredness? Can I help myself? Um, by, by just practically considering what life is like right now and maybe being ruthless with that which causes me to be tired, which might just be to do with choices about what time I have to get up in the morning and what time I choose to go to bed at night. Um, am I committed to too many activities that I'm just running around like a headless chicken so when temptation comes I'm more liable to fall into it because my defences are down, I'm not thinking clearly. Um, we need to guard our hearts, we need to guard our lives. This is encouraging us to, to be deliberate, to actually take a step. Well, it doesn't sound much like grace to me. Might be another response. And just before we come into land, let's look at Titus. Just to see that actually, this is not Jesus laying down the law. Jesus always lays down grace. And that's what uh, Paul has understood in writing to Titus. Chapter 2, speaking of the grace of God, he says in verse 12, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The grace of God teaches us. The grace of God teaches us because we're seeing all that Jesus has done for us. We're looking at the cross and we're seeing what he was prepared to do, how he, what he was prepared to go through in order to taste hell for us. I think, wow, we're, we're looking ahead. We're seeing that where Jesus is now and where he's leading us into the future. We're looking that he's, he's made us his own people. We've got this blessed hope. We're awaiting this glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We're saying, this is life, and I'm looking forward to eternal life 
in him with his presence that I know what it is to be his people or in his people for eternity. So that kind of puts things in perspective. This other thing that I'm tempted to idolize can't save me, doesn't know me inside out. This other thing that I'm tempted to follow didn't die for me. It can't forgive me. It can't change my life. It doesn't actually offer me life. It's leading to hell or it's leading to death. It's leading to destruction. Oh, thank you for the grace of God because it leads us a different path. I can say no to that because it's like playing with mud pies rather than going to the beach and Jesus is calling me into a much better place, a much better future. So an uncomfortable passage, but it still shows us the wonderful grace of God and what he's done for us and what we're invited to realise again. We need to, to pay attention to warning passages. Sometimes it can just be that necessary wake-up call. It might not mean, wow, I, you know, I, really, I, I completely need to relay a foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death from that Hebrews passage last week. Well, maybe it does. Maybe, it real, maybe it's just that reminder, sin matters, and I've been trying to live a different way. For others, it might just be, it's just a reminder, yet I know I, that could be a problem, so I'm still dealing with it. I'm still going to cut it off at source. Why? Because I'm enjoying the grace of God. I'm part of his people. I'm looking forward to eternal life. And I want to grow in intimacy with him. Amen? Amen.